Have you ever stopped and, and thought about how often during the day you're, you're photographed or, or filmed? I mean, think about it. We live in a world where Big Brother's always watching. You walk into uh, a school, there are, there are security cameras. Um, you, uh, you walk into a bank and there are security cameras. You, you take your shopping cart back to uh, Walmart or Dillon's, there are security cameras. Even here at the church, uh, at, at night, there are security cameras in the building and out in the parking lot. We live in a world where we seem to be watched 24-7. And yet, David tells us here in Psalm 139 that at every moment of each and every day, we are under a much, much higher scrutiny. He tells us that the God who knows us, that, that God knows us better than we know ourselves, that God is aware of and anticipates our every action and our innermost thoughts. And what is more, David describes this knowledge as, as not just a passive knowledge about us, but, a, but, but it's an active knowledge. He begins by saying, O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. And then David continues throughout the psalm to describe the extent of God's knowledge of us as his people. He pictures God watching from a distance. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Is it possible that in this age of, of constant surveillance, that the wonder of this truth is lost on us? You know, to be honest, I think we are so used to to being under surveillance, we hardly notice it anymore. But the knowledge God has of us is not only extensive and comprehensive, but it's intimate. It's it's personal, deeply personal. And David describes God as seen as from afar. But that doesn't mean that he thinks that God is far off and far removed from our lives. You know, um, people sometimes say that I can be a hard read in some situations. They can't tell what I'm thinking or feeling. But if you ask my wife, Nancy, she almost always knows. We've been married over 27 years. Uh, we knew each other for about a year and a half or so, almost two years before that. Uh, and she usually knows what I'm thinking, even when I'm trying to mask it or, or hide it. But the knowledge of God that God has of us is, is even one step further than that. It's not just that he knows us well enough from a distance. His knowledge of us is so deep that he can see us coming and going. And what he means by that, listen to verse 4. It's, it's a knowledge that's so complete that it's predictive. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. So, so is, is David saying that God can read our minds? Well, yes, in a manner of speaking. But he's, he's saying even more than that. He's saying that God sees our thoughts before they're even fully formed. Now, that could raise some questions. For example, it could raise questions about prayer. If God knows what I'm going to say before I say it, why do I need to pray? Have you ever thought that? Why doesn't God just look into the future, anticipate my request, and grant the answer before I put it into words? Well, in fact, there are times when God does just that. We're just not really thinking about it. I mean, think about it. Analyze God's answers to some of your prayers, and you will often find that in order for the timing to work, the answer had to be set in motion before you ever uttered the words. We often experience what God promised Israel, or Jerusalem in Isaiah 65. <clears throat> before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. You still might say, well, yeah, but why go through this charade of asking God if he already knows what I'm going to say? Is prayer some kind of, of game? 
Is God teasing me like someone who holds uh, his hand behind his back? Holds my desire behind my back, waiting for me to use just the right words all the time, knowing that it's what I need and what I want? Well, the trouble with this viewpoint is not only that it, it, it gives us an unworthy, kind of manipulative view of God. Its root problem is that it misunderstands the nature of prayer. It assumes that prayer is to be primarily functional. It assumes the main reason we pray is to get what we want, which can actually be true sometimes where we are concerned. I mean, I, I need to confess to you that there are days or weeks when if you were to analyze my prayer list, it would, it would be, have more in common with a grocery list or a or Christmas gift list than it would with a conversation or with God. But there's more to prayer than the answer. There's more to prayer than the asking. Prayer at its foundational element is to be a relational encounter. In his book entitled Beginning to Pray, Anthony Bloom writes this. It's very important to remember that prayer is an encounter and a relationship. A relationship which is deep and this relationship cannot be forced either on us or on God. Bloom goes on to warn that one of the great dangers we face in this area is the temptation to take an impersonal and impersonal approach to prayer. He writes, there are many times when we are ready to pray, but we're not ready to receive God. He says, we want something from God, but God himself, not so much. This can even be true of a passionate prayer. Bloom asks us to think of those times when our prayers are marked by warmth and intensity. When the prayer concerns someone we love or something that's very important to us. He writes, then your heart is open and all inner self is recollected in the prayer. Does it mean that God matters to you? No, not necessarily. It simply means that the subject matters of your prayer matters to you. See, the problem isn't that I have, that I have I'm using the wrong posture or the wrong language. The real problem is, is, is my angle or vision. The problem is that I haven't learned to see David, God as David sees him, as a God who knows me deeply and personally, a God who's acquainted with my thoughts, a God who speaks my language, anticipates my every word, a God who knows me better than I know myself. I don't know what I'm going to say sometimes before I say it. I certainly don't know, don't know what I'm going to be thinking tomorrow at this hour, but God does. He knows not only my thoughts, but my ways. God sees his coming and going. David now shifts his focus from God's knowledge of us to God's presence with us. In verses 5 through 12, the picture is not of a God who discerns our thoughts from afar, but a God who is close up. You hem me in behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Is God behind him? Yes. Is God in front of him? Yes. David is surrounded by God and God's hand is constantly on him. And so then now David kind of does this mental experiment to imagine what it would be like to try and get away from God. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise in the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, you are there. David concludes that flight from God is impossible. But David makes a further point. Not only is God with him wherever he goes, but God is also guiding him. Verse 10. Even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. 
Now, this idea of God always around us, always with us, never we can never get away from it. For some people, it's very comforting. And for some people, it's a little bit unsettling and uncomfortable. And it all depends on how you understand how God relates to you. For example, if a you if there's a hand on your shoulder and you turn around and it's a policeman and he's going to arrest you, that's no comfort, is it? But you would feel very different if the hand that was resting on your shoulder was that of a friend or a loved one. If you're about to slip on the ice, the grip of somebody who's trying to hold you fast is is a help. But if your intent is to get away, to flee, you would feel that grip like a prisoner does his or her shackles. You would hate it. You would strain against it. You know, I noticed something about teenagers as their kids were moving from childhood to adolescence. I noticed that they begin to respond a little bit differently to a parent's touch. When they're little, they seem eager just to hug you all the time and, 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 and to climb all over you and jump on you. And you're sort of a personal jungle gym for them. But as they become older, things begin to change. And that's OK. It's appropriate. They, they still let you hug them. But but in their teen years, there's a little bit of a, a stiffening, a little bit of a resistance. Some of it can be attributed to teenage adolescence, the awkwardness of it. Uh, many teenagers go through a period where they have a hard time expressing Affection. But I think the change is also a symbol of their growing independence. The autonomy they declare with their body language is matched by some of the choices they make. They sometimes stiffen against boundaries or constraints or rules. And the rules and standards that we see as parents as an expression of love and a means of protection, sometimes they see as, as control and a lack of freedom. So which is it for you in relationship to God? When it comes to God's strong handle of love, is it a source of comfort? Or is it something that you stiffen against and resist? Does the inescapable presence of God make you feel protected or exposed and uncomfortably vulnerable? If we're honest, we probably say it's a little bit of both. I mean, David seems to be a little bit ambivalent, a little bit comfortable and comforted and a little bit uncomfortable at the same time. In verse 12, he says, if I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the night will become and the light will become night around me. Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day for darkness is as light to you. Now, if you're trying to navigate an unfamiliar landscape and it's dark, it can be comforting to know that God can see just as well in the dark as he can in the light. But it's not so comforting if you're trying to use the darkness for cover. You see, where God is concerned, there's no way to cover up. We can't outrun him. We can't hide. We can't put up a smoke screen that obscures the true state of our heart or our actions. God sees everything with complete clarity. We can fool our neighbors. We can fool our family or friends. We can fool ourselves. But we cannot deceive God. He's got he's got our number. He sees our coming and our going. And for good reason, because he is our creator. He's the author and the architect of our soul. He's our creator and he's been involved in our lives from the very beginning. Verse 13 says, for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Now, now the Hebrew word here translated created in this verse is a word that means to purchase or to get. It gives you the idea of a of a craftsman or an artisan who who purchases materials. And it gives you the picture of God purchasing the materials, getting the gathering, the materials together that make up as our inmost parts. And he weaves them together. 
And David marvels at God's work and skill. He thanks God for it. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. And this, this, this phrase, when he's speaking about secret place and woven together in the depths of the earth, he's using language to describe human conception and development. The psalmist sees his frame and his unformed body as a work of God. That's a radically different worldview than the one that would see the unformed fetus as a blob of tissue. According to God's word, human conception is not an accidental process, but an intentional one. The, the modern world looks at the human form as a machine, as a mere collection of cells or a consequence of random forces. But the scripture sees it as a work of God. And what is more, he sees God at work in the entire scope of his life, not just at a conception, but also during all the days ordained for him. And the same God who's at work in the womb continues to work in our lives once we leave the womb. He sees us when we're unformed and he keeps a record of all our days. This thought moves David to praise again. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. You see the contrast between David's view, the psalmist's view, and that of, of the modern world? It's striking and it's tragic. Fearfully and wonderfully made are the words he uses. A work of God. He sees human life as something to be celebrated and for which God deserves praise. Not to be treated like a tumor to be scraped away or discarded. Not to be treated like a commodity, something to be harvested for the benefits of others, or something to be bought and sold in the marketplace. It's this view that can only lead to further degradation, because if we cannot value life in the womb, how can we value it outside? And how have we come to such a low view of ourselves as human beings? The answer is a simple one, and it resounds throughout the psalm. We, we lost sight of ourselves when we lost sight of God, because God is the one who gives life. God who gives us purpose. God who gives us dignity. Rule God out of the equation, what do you have? A mass of cells and little more, a piece of tissue, a commodity. Now, I know this is a very sensitive and complicated issue in many ways, but I want to affirm that I believe the Scripture teaches the dignity and sanctity of human life. Scripture also, it needs to be said, teaches God's grace, sufficient grace, and God's forgiveness, which is offered to all who trust in him, and that there are no sins that are too, too deep, too dark, too many that God cannot and will not forgive when we put our trust in Jesus. I want to read something from John Calvin's Institute of the Christian Religion. He says that the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves are interrelated. Nearly all the, possess, the wisdom we possess, he writes, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. And he goes on to say that we never achieve a clear knowledge of ourselves until we have first gazed upon God's face and then moved from contemplating God to scrutinizing ourselves. And that view of ourselves, what we might discover, 
isn't always entirely comfortable. Because when we consider ourselves in the light of God, we see both what we were like when we were first created and what our condition becomes after the fall. The psalmist then moves from contemplating the wonder of God's work and conception to considering himself. And in doing so, he he does two things. He aligns himself with God's purposes and he asks God to search him. He aligns himself with God's purposes by contrasting God's truth from the actions of the wicked. Verse 19, if only you would slay the wicked, O God. Away from me, you bloodthirsty men. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count to my enemies. Now, this is harsh language, and it makes us a little bit uncomfortable and a little bit embarrassed. What do we do with this? But I think David's uncomfortable words are a reminder that there really is such a thing as evil in this world. And it's okay to denounce it. But we must be very careful when denouncing evil to not become self-righteous and miss the potential and possible presence of evil in our own lives. That's why David concludes with this prayer. Search me and know my heart, O God. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I want to conclude with a a quote, a little bit of quotes from a Christianity article day to Christianity Today article entitled Looking for Monsters is written by Kay Warren, a pastor's wife from California. She it's, it's kind of the context is she's visited Rwanda for the first time and she goes there expecting to be able to easily uh, see and point out to spot the monsters who perpetrated the genocide back in 1994. What she writes is this. What I found left me puzzled and ultimately terrified. Instead of finding leering, menacing creatures, I met men and women who looked and behaved a lot like me. They took care of their families, went to work, chatted with their neighbors, laughed, cried, prayed, and worshipped. Where were the monsters? Where were the evildoers capable of heinous acts? Slowly, with a, with a deepening sense of dread, I realized the truth. There were no monsters in Rwanda, just people like you and me. The good news is that God... The God who is our creator is also our redeemer. The God who is always with us, who knows us intimately better than we know ourselves. That God, the architect of our soul, is also the architect of our salvation. He is the God who became flesh and dwelt among us through the person of Jesus Christ. He is the God who shed his blood for our sin. Our creator is also our redeemer. Jesus Christ, the only one who can save us. The God who made us loves us and is always with us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We're grateful um, for your truth. And Lord, we, um, we thank you for the truth that you're always with us, that you know us intimately and deeply, that you guide us and direct us. Um, Lord, that you have been with us from the moment of conception, even before then, in a sense, uh, and you're with us today. Lord, help us to be people who, who live and walk out of that grace that you've offered us through Jesus Christ. And we thank you for your great love. In Jesus' name, amen.